Welcome to the Pocket Salon. I'm Jason Caffrey. In this edition, are you a psychopath? My own father was a nailed-down psychopath. He was charming, he was charismatic, he was ruthless, he was fearless. Myself, where do I score? Pretty high. Are you mad about singing? Or are you just overdue a nice glass of sherry? Well, with my responsible drinking hat on, I should say, yes, that is too early. But if push came to shove, I'd probably have a glass for breakfast. Whether you're hot for Harvey's Bristol Cream, head over heels about the human voice, or just plain nuts, welcome to Salon. I'm here at the Adams Street Club in central London to give you a flavour of the evening. And alongside me to help steer a sane path through all this madness, our Salon co-founders, Juliet Russell and Helen Bagnall. Hello. Now, to get us up and running, uh, can you give us an outline for anybody who might not have been to Salon before of what it's all about? Salon basically is brain food, but in a really fun environment. So it's basically massive ideas in intimate spaces, always based around an art, science and psychology theme. But it's not three dry lectures. It's always really interactive, really participatory. And it mainlines you into really fascinating ideas in a really accessible way. And you, Julia, have been working with Helen for quite some time on this. Yeah, we've been going for five years. I think we'll be looking at our sixth year at the end of this year. And everyone just gets better. We get better. <laughs> and the gets gets, our audience gets bigger, our audience gets better, more adventurous. That's true. And um, we keep getting better and better salons. And this evening you've had some very cool presentations. We have. We've had a very, very cool evening around our theme of Ma Chérie Amour. We were to have Kerry Danes, who's a forensic psychologist, speak about love as mental illness. Kerry had lost her voice. So salons Juliet Russell one of the best vocal coaches in the country, <laughs> stepped in at a moment's notice with her voice not lost at all to present the natural voice, which was a way of looking at the way that our voice works and a little bit. We even had the salon audience singing. We then had a sherry session from Jane Parkinson who wanted to introduce a new audience to her passion for sherry. That went very well. And we had Kevin Dutton who was presenting his work around the theme, The Wisdom of Psychopaths. Well, we're gonna get a little taste of all of those things, but let's start with Kevin Dutton. He's a professor of psychology at Oxford University. He's a world expert in social influence and persuasion, and he's interested in how psychopathic traits can be found, not just in dangerous criminals banged up in Broadmoor, but in top surgeons, soldiers, and lawyers and to check for psychopathic characteristics in everyday people, he's put together a little quiz. You can take the quiz for yourself on Kevin's website, wisdomofpsychopaths.com. Here's what happened when he tried it at the salon. Kevin Dutton trying to weed out the dangerous individuals from this evening's audience. Kevin's written a book called The Wisdom of Psychopaths and I asked him what identifies a psychopath. 
Well, it's a great question, isn't it? I mean, no sooner is the word psychopath out than images of Ted Bundy or Patrick Bateman come flashing across our minds. But actually, when psychologists like myself use the word psychopath, we're actually referring to a specialised group of individuals uh, with a distinct subset of personality characteristics, such as ruthlessness, fearlessness, self-confidence, charm, charisma, focus, coolness under pressure, and of course that trademark lack of conscience and empathy. Now, if you think about those personality characteristics as being the dials on a studio mixing desk that can be twiddled up and down in various combinations, you arrive at two conclusions. The first one is that being a psychopath isn't a black or white affair. It's not a case of either you're a psychopath or you're not. And secondly, there is no one definitive correct setting for these dials to be set at, but rather the golden configuration, as it were, depends on the particular set of circumstances you might find yourself in, the context, okay? Now, if you take that a little bit further, you then arrive at another conclusion, which is that certain professions, through their very nature, might demand that these dials are turned up a little bit higher than average. Imagine, for instance, if you've got all the technical smarts to be one of the world's greatest surgeons, you've got the medical know-how and the expertise, except for the fact that you cannot disassociate yourself from the person lying in front of you on the operating table, you are not going to be a great surgeon. So the wisdom of psychopaths depends to a great extent on the particular kind of context that you are deploying these traits in. In general life, psychopaths tend to be assertive, they don't procrastinate, they focus on the positives, they don't take things personally, they don't beat themselves up when things go wrong, and they're cool under pressure. These are traits that we can all benefit from in everyday life. So is it just context that makes the difference between a safe psychopath and a dangerous one? There is a particular trait that distinguishes between what we call dysfunctional, unsuccessful psychopaths and functional, successful psychopaths. If we go back to that mixing desk analogy, one of the dials is impulsivity. Pretty good evidence suggests that if the impulsivity dial is turned up high, then that is going to tip you over from being a functional psychopath to a dysfunctional one, from being a successful one to an unsuccessful one. So if you don't have that ability to delay gratification, to put on hold what you want, then that is a pretty good predictor of whether you're going to wind up in a whole lot of trouble or not. How did you get attracted to this field of research? Is it a case of being attracted to something that you recognise in yourself, perhaps? Well, it's a funny question, that, actually. I mean, looking back on it, it seems a very strange thing to say, but my own father was a nailed-down psychopath. I mean, he wasn't violent, but then, of course, one of the points of, uh, of my book is that you don't necessarily have to be violent to be a psychopath. He was charming, he was charismatic, he was ruthless, he was fearless. He was a market trader, not in the stock market, but I never once saw my father embarrassed or ashamed in his entire life, and I always tell a story which kind of sums him up. I always remember when I was about nine or ten, my father took me out for an Indian meal in London, in one of these cheap Indian restaurants, of which there were many. And just as he was about to pay, he stood up and suddenly tinkled his spoon against his glass and gave an impromptu speech. And he said, uh, I'd just like to thank everyone for coming. I know that some of you have come from just around the corner and some of you have come from a little bit further afield, but you're all equally welcome. Oh, and by the way, there's a bar across the road and um, it would be uh, great to see you there at a little drinks reception that's going to go on there. At which point he started to clap at which point, of course, so did the entire restaurant. So we've now got an entire restaurant of strangers who've never seen us before, never seen each other before, all applauding wildly because they didn't want to be seen as the gatecrashers to the party, right? So remember, I was only about nine or 10. We were going out the door and I remember saying to my dad, clear as day, Dad, we're not really going to the pub, are we? 
And he said, of course we're not, son, but uh, you know what? That lot are. And my mate Malcolm has just taken over as landlord. He'll make a few quid tonight. And can you imagine how much money, what kind of incentive I would have to give you to even attempt to get up and do that? It was sheer balls that you need to get up and do that. That's kind of bare-faced confidence, this fearlessness. Myself, where do I score? Pretty high. I think I've certainly inherited certain things from my dad. I'm pretty fearless, not much phases me. I can be pretty focused, I'm pretty cool under pressure. What lets me down in the psychopath stakes is my conscience style. It's turned up much higher than my father's was. The research that you've done has also taken you into a pretty unusual situation. You've uh, visited and spoken to a lot of dangerous people. Yeah, that's right. I mean, one of the people often ask me what it's like, uh, you know, if you deal with, say, a group of psychopaths, what it's actually like, what kind of vibe do you get from them? And I have to say that the vibe that, that I get from uh, psychopaths is when you first meet psychopaths, particularly special forces soldiers who are, let's say, high on the psychopathic spectrum, let's put it that way, you get an incredibly positive anything's possible vibe and of course there is a reason for that because whereas you or I if we were faced with a situation that takes us out of our comfort zone our default setting might be to come up with reasons not to do it we fear failure we fear rejection we have all these kinds of social fears but of course psychopaths don't have those kinds of fears it's a case of you know why not why not do it let's get it on and of course in this day and age I think when we're all being scrutinized a little bit more I think we actually kind of I think we have psychopath envy. I think that we kind of, to a certain extent, envy psychopaths, this devil-may-care attitude. I think we all wish we were a little bit more like that. You know, a little bit like the uh, control pedals on a car. Psychopaths have their feet are on the gas a lot of the time, and, of course, that can lead to the car careering off the road. But I think the problem with a lot of us is that our feet hover too much over the brakes. So I think our fascination with psychopaths is partly to do with that. It's partly to do with the fact that we really envy them, their kind of existential freedom in a way. But of course, if we had that freedom, I don't think we'd be able to deal with it particularly well. And of course, too much of that, it can lead to problems. Professor Kevin Dutton, you're listening to The Pocket Salon with me, Jason Caffrey, and still with me, Salon co-founders Helen Bagnall and Juliet Russell. So. What do you two make of all of this psychology? Listening to Kevin, I get the feeling we're all on a tilt at least some of the time. I think what's brilliant about Kevin is the way he puts his ideas across. He's so rock and roll in his delivery and he's like obviously, you know, a real leading person in his field, yet he translates everything in a really fun, interactive way. And we were going to hear from psychologist Kerry Danes about being in love as a, a mental illness uh, sadly, she's not well, she's lost her voice, and so you, Juliet, stepped in with your own presentation about the human voice, and it, it's a powerful instrument, isn't it, the voice? Yeah, and I think what I tried to bring to life in the session was that this tiny little group of muscles and membranes is just incredibly effective as an expressive tool, and it was great that the audience was so into it, so they kind of practised doing their twang, their creak, um, found out about chest voice and head voice, and they were really up for singing, they sang really well, did a bit of work on posture, and I really wanted them just to play around and think, think about the scope of expression with a human voice, because it's an incredibly versatile instrument. And it's also uh, very personal, isn't it? We recognise people immediately from their voices. 
Yeah, and that's what's lovely, is this kind of like a fingerprint, it's something that's really unique to you. And our voice is definitely defined by our physicality, but also when we learn to experiment with it, play with it a bit more, we can get a lot more out of it too. And, and something you'll know about as a, a vocal coach is what you can develop with training and coaching. Mm -hmm. it, can, it can just do extraordinary things. I think, like most things when you're training and coaching, a lot of it is about giving people confidence and kind of tricking them into doing certain things with their voice. Like what we started with today is a cricoid tilt and doing that puppy Show dog us. whine. So like a little... You're doing something very easy that they can all do and then before they know it they've sung in their head voice whereas most people think oh, I can't sing high but then they are so yeah. Or most people think I just can't sing. True. <laughs> <laughs> but they sang happy birthday really well they, didn't they? And then we did a bit of interaction at the end, playing a Christina Aguilera song, Beautiful, that they could identify some of the voice qualities we'd experimented with during the session, and they were good. They got most of them. Falsetto Flip was a particularly good one. <laughs> How do you feel about singing and, and when you sing, Juliet? I actually get really nervous before I sing, but I love doing it. And there's all these studies that show the benefits of singing in terms of it's a great aerobic exercise, but it's also, it does release some of those feel-good chemicals. So I really am mad about singing, and I work with people with voices all the time, every day of my life. So I love sharing that passion with people and, and making people realise that actually they can all do quite a lot with their voices. I mean, it's, our bodies are amazing, and to... For me, a big thing when I studied vocal anatomy was thinking much more about the inside of the body than the outside, because we tend to judge people a lot by the outside. But as you get older, the inside and what's going on is so much more important. Helen, I'm going to come across to you now. We've got one more guest in this pocket salon, a guest with a slightly different obsession. But before we hear from her, just tell us about what's coming up for salon. Our next salon, we're actually attempting history, which we've never done before. We've always thought it wasn't us because we're art, science, psychology. But we're doing it in a salon way. So we're doing salon as if it was 1649. So we'll be looking at the mood and the ideas of that time across art, psychology, not that it existed, and science at that time. And we're in... Uh, the Banqueting House, which is on Whitehall, which is the palace that Charles I walked out of to be executed in 1649. And 1649 is probably the age in which the Reformation started, so the big ideas really began to really grow at that point. So it's a really exciting time. And where do we go if we want to buy tickets and find out more and stay in touch? The easiest way to stay in touch with us is through our mailing list. We go out once a month at the very most, um, and that would tell you what was going to come up. Um, but the Salon 1649 is on uh, Monday the 24th of June, and you can get tickets on our website. It says it on the left, tickets. <laughs> and the website is? Oh, the website is www.salon-london.com. Okay, Helen, so would you kindly introduce our last guest? Uh, Jane Parkinson is an award-winning wine writer and one of the UK's youngest and most glamorous. Um, she writes for the FT, Stylist, Shortlist, she's on the radio, she loves wine and she loves talking about it. This evening she's been telling the salon crowd about sherry, which sherries to drink and why, and of course there was a taste test. <laughs>
Okay, so what do you think about that? So generous and rich and warming. Is it like just like a really big hug? Well, I'm incredibly passionate about sherry, both on a professional level and on a personal level, because it's one of the styles of drinks that I have at home probably more so than anything else. I think it's a fantastically underrated style of wine that we should embrace more, so I'm doing my best to try and spread the word a little bit. Sherry does have an image as something that's enjoyed by older generations, but you're certainly not older generation. It does have that image and there's an element of truth in it in that, yes, older people, there is an older generation that does enjoy a certain style of sherry. But what I'm trying to do is to show people the breadth of styles of sherries that are available to us, many of which are dry. And people have this image of sherry as being this gloopy, sickly, sweet beige-coloured drink, but actually it's about so much more than that. And so I'm trying to show people, younger generations, that it can be a very dry style of sherry and a very versatile style of wine that goes with lots of different foods. And how did you come to be interested in sherry particularly? I know that you're obviously a wine writer, but uh, did you nick a bottle out of your Auntie Olive's cabinet when you were a teenager? How did it happen? (laughs) No, my auntie wasn't a sherry drinker, funnily enough. Neither were my parents. But my love really started, it was, as with many things, on a professional level, I was very lucky. I was invited down to the south of Spain, to the region of Jerez, where they make sherry. And being immersed in that culture drinking the sherries at the right temperature with the right food, seeing how the local people enjoyed it and it was part of their way of life, really made me fall in love with it, I suppose. And I wanted to recreate that back here, even though we don't really have the climate or the food or um, the same culture. Uh, You talk about different styles and and a diversity. I mean, it sounds like there's a lot more certainly on offer in the south of Spain than I might expect in my local supermarket. (laughs) There's probably more available in your local supermarket than you would think. But there is enough choice available, but not necessarily just in supermarkets, though. If you go to local independent merchants, I think you'll find often they will have an even more advanced range of sherries than maybe you'll find in supermarkets. So it might be something you need to seek out, but it's absolutely worth it. And so as a sherry novice, if I have to put one bottle in my drinks cabinet, which one should I go for? Well, I suppose I'd have to go for personal preference, and that would be a style of sherry called a Palo Cortado. So a style Palo Cortado is like Fino's a style of sherry, Manzanilla's a style of sherry. Palo Cortado is wonderful to me because it has both a freshness to it that you get from these younger styles of sherries like Fino, but it also has a richness to it that comes from a slight ageing as well. So it's sort of got the best of both worlds, and for me, that makes it possibly the most versatile style of sherry plus of course it's absolutely delicious so for those reasons i'd go for a palo cortado that's it from this pocket salon check back with us for more even better get yourself along to the next salon event you'll find us at www.salon-london.com we do social media too you'll find salon on twitter on facebook plus now with the podcast soundcloud and audioboo until next time have fun Don't get crazy. Bye-bye. Yay!